Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Clay Conry, host of the Working Cows podcast. Clay is a native of Western South Dakota, and he ranches there now. I had heard of the Working Cows podcast through a rancher here in Ellensburg who recommended it to me, and we then had the opportunity to meet virtually at the Colorado Section of Society for Range Management meeting this last fall. Clay, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Tip. Thanks for the invitation. I gave a pretty quick introduction, but uh, tell me how you ended up being a podcast host. So uh, in 2017, um, I had kind of been through a transition at my job in town as a youth and associate pastor and was looking for more uh, part-time work and um, continuing my role there at the church, but also looking to fill in some more hours during the week. And my dad was also looking for part-time help. So serendipitously or providentially, however you want to say that, um, I ended up with the opportunity to uh, work for my dad. And um, I, as, as I was getting started there, he came across an advertisement in the, I think it was the uh, Tri-State Livestock News, a local, um, just what it sounds like, <laughs> a newspaper here in the area. And they were advertising for the High Plains Ranch Practicum. Uh, which at that time was taught by Dallas Mount and Aaron Berger and Blake Hopman. Um, they were all extension guys, Dallas and, and Blake from Wyoming and Aaron from Nebraska, and they partnered together to do the High Plains Ranch practicum. And uh, my dad said, you should go to that. And I took my wife and we went together and uh, we got some really uh, great, great training on managing land, animals, people, and money, um, kind of reopened my eyes to the, uh, to the world of ranching and different ways of looking at it and thinking about it. And during the course of that uh, class, a couple of times, Dallas made the statement that somebody in the classroom should start a podcast for ranchers. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I've been around cows my whole life and uh, I have uh, gained some skills as far as uh, recording audio and, and understanding the ins and outs of, of audio uh, equipment and those things. I have, and I've, I've been a podcast junkie for a couple of years, really enjoy listening to podcasts, just never knew other than releasing weekly recordings of sermons, what my podcast would be about and uh, decided I would take the leap after a couple of promptings, not directly at me, but just to the class in general for somebody to start a podcast. And uh, so I, I dove in in November of 2017, and uh, first couple of guests were um, kind of indicative of how the rest of that journey would go. But uh, just people that happened to be traveling through, or P or Dallas himself, uh, and then his he mentioned a list of guests at the end of his his episode, and I kind of took notes there. And so, yeah, that's kind of been the journey. Is, is it, how it started, anyways? Was was uh, just recording an episode with Dallas and talking to him about the four pillars of ranching and, uh, and then, yeah, chasing the network from there, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. That's pretty similar to my story, <clears throat> i.e. 
somebody ought to be doing a podcast on this. And there's all kinds of interesting material out there. So we started. Uh, I really like the title, Working Cows. I can think of several different connotations or spins on on what all you might mean by that. Um, what do you mean by that? Do you have any particular aim or goal with the podcast that is uh, captured by those words, working cows? Yeah, primarily uh, we want cows to work for us, not us to work for them. Um, I think we want we want to find ways to put our cows to work um, <clears throat> for for us, and and by that I mean um, making them do the work of of getting getting feed. I mean, we're obviously providing them opportunity to get feed, but not as much as possible. Not having to move uh, move feed to cows, rather move cows to feed. And so that's, that's definitely one of the things, probably the, the one that we like to talk about the most, just because it's the most fun to talk about. But I think that I was cognizant of at least a couple of other plays on the words or on the title, working cows, and those would be um, low stress animal handling, which I think um, my background growing up on a ranch, that was the one that, that I was most exposed to growing up. Um, and, and there were some limitations to why I wasn't exposed to the other, other ways that working cows, the title is a play on words. Uh, but my dad was, was a good stockman. And I think part of the reason that that one was the one that I was most exposed to is because it's the one that my dad had the most control over. Uh, we, we didn't have opportunity to implement the style of management that my dad was aware of or wanted to necessarily because most of the land that we ran on for, you know, through 280 days a year was leased land. And uh, so it wasn't necessarily within his ability to determine how management happened on those on those ground. But when we were when we were working cows, when we were doing stockmanship, uh, my dad has has proved to be um, someone who really understood stockmanship and uh, had I don't know if he picked it up. Uh, where he picked it up. Um, I don't know what his educational background as far as stockmanship was concerned, but he did a good job of that. And so when we're working cows, we want cows that work for us and we want to work cows in a low stress way. Then uh, we also want to um, work cows from the perspective of um, making sure that we are making financially and economically informed decisions, not just making decisions because the the tax preparer says it's a good idea or making decisions because uh, this will do X, Y, or Z for us. So uh, those, those are some of the ways. And then obviously uh, low stress animal handling should be paired with low stress people handling. And so working cows doesn't have to be cause for uh, marriage counseling after the event. I think if we, if we approach it, if we approach, if we approach it uh, with, with our thinking caps on, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's right. I actually think that this low stress handling is maybe a bigger deal than uh, some people give it credit for. Uh, I have, I've overheard a few conversations with longtime ranchers who have confessed in their, you know, when they're in their sixties that they suspect their children don't want to have anything to do with ranching because of the extreme stress that was present, social stress between the people whenever they were working cows. They associated running the ranch with, uh, you know, terrible family stress and 
and therefore don't really have much interest in it, even if it is financially viable. And so I think, you know, there's people are always talking about how do we get the next generation to be interested in agriculture. You know, one of the biggest pieces is that it has to work for them. Working cows has to be something that works for us. And uh, I, I have seen a number of ranches that have implemented, you know, various versions of low stress livestock handling, and it has resulted in significantly improved family relations, independent of, you know, whether it's good for the cows. Yeah, you know, I I think that's that's a, a big part of it. Um, you know, something that gets mentioned often uh, is that when we are willing to approach ranching from a different perspective when we're willing to be thought of maybe as a little bit weird um, in in our own neighborhoods, then um, ranching can some sometimes even be described as fun, <laughs> and and if we can if we can make it fun uh, while we're in the moment. Um, not just when we get away from the ranch, we go and have fun and we know how to have a good time and we, and we do intentionally get away from the ranch to go have fun, but also in the moment of, uh, whatever it is, uh, whatever sector of the business we're involved in, in the moment, we can make those things fun too. And I think that's a big part of getting that generational transfer to happen. Uh, but I, I think it's also something that we need to continually keep in mind as we're as we're in the moment not getting not becoming victims of the moment but um being aware that if we're willing to take this job and let it take as much time as it needs to not have a deadline in mind that we can probably reduce some of the stress on on people and animals for sure you mentioned that you started the podcast with several suggestions for people to talk to from Dallas Mount uh, once you got through that first batch what has been your approach to selecting interviewees? I think it's mainly been my network or not my network, but the network of the guests um, kind of has continued to color the the interviewees. Um, past guests will send me emails of people I should talk to. Um, the network of people who listen to the show will send me emails of people I should talk to. Uh, people will reach out and say, Hey, I've got some, some perspective I would like to share. Uh, you know, and so I think that there it's been, it's been mainly the network, uh, just continues to feed, uh, the guest recommendation pool and the guest recommendation pool continues to grow faster than I can, can satisfy, <laughs> can satisfy it. But, uh, that's mm -hmm. a good problem to have. Uh, but it, it is also, um, you know, kind of a function of who's available when, when I'm available. And, uh, and sometimes people, we don't get our, our schedules coordinated and it takes me a long time to get back around to, to, uh, reaching out to them and stuff. But yeah, it's just been the network. And so the, the network of people who listen and the people who uh, are on the show continues to drive, uh, the, the guests that I, that I continue to bring on. How long have you been doing the podcast now? Yeah, I started in November of 2017. So the class High Plains Ranch Practicum, I think the first class was in June of 2017. And then uh, they took a month off in July. And then we came back in August and maybe back to back months, August and September, and then took another month off and came back in November. And so I launched the class uh, like the Monday after our last 
class of the High Plains Ranch practicum in November of 2017. I announced it to the class and then and then launched it there. And uh, yeah, I have averaged more than an episode a week since then. But I mean, like barely, like 1.1 or 1.2 episodes a week. So not not a lot more than one. But I shoot for an episode every week. Sometimes I don't get an episode out every week. Sometimes uh, I get two episodes out the next week or something like that. But uh, if you if you do the math on 171 episodes since November of 2017, it comes out to a little over an episode a week since November of 2017. Yeah, that's quite a bit of content, uh, you know, from, I like to think of podcasting as audio journalism. What are some big ideas that you feel like have uh, kind of settled out from that content over the last several years? Um, I think that the people side of it, you know, has continued to come up. Uh, the people side of ranching and and the importance of managing that well, um, you know, so many so many uh, examples you could cite of of people who uh, had a had a a ranching operation, a farming operation that was never turned over, uh, that they never got a chance to run, um, that it was turned over but with strings attached or or whatever. You know, that succession issue continues to be. Uh, uh, an, an important issue, uh, an issue that shows itself in all parts of, you know, like you, like you said, um, or Alan Crockett says, uh, every problem is a people problem. Um, if you've got mm-hmm. overgrazing issues, it's a people problem. If you've got, uh, if you've got financial issues, it's a people problem. If you've got stockmanship issues, it's a people problem. Uh, so, you know, every problem is a people problem. And ultimately to fix any problem, we're going to have to deal with people. And sometimes those people in a smaller operation is, is just the person in the mirror. I've got to change the way I think and do and, and act to, to fix this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's the people around the supper table. And, and sometimes that's more uncomfortable than it being the person in the mirror. Uh, but, but we've got to learn to, um, to be tactful and skillful as skillful, more skillful in handling people problems than we are in handling uh, herd health problems, um, uh, land land management problems, uh, money management problems. I think we need to we need to be as skillful at handling people problems as we are uh, at handling, or more skillful than we are at handling those other other areas. Um, is, and I guess I don't know. Um, there's kind of two ways to look at that uh, in the in the paradigm challenging uh, side of the ranching industry. There's either three or four pillars of a ranching operation, and we've danced around them a little bit here today. But I'll say that in, for my for my money, I will say people, land, animals, and money or finances uh, are are the the four pillars of a ranching operation. And so we need to become the most skilled. I think. If we want to see long-term generational success, we need to be most skilled and invest in developing the skills of people management in our in our operations, and then hopefully that will infect in a positive way all the other uh, all the other pillars of that operation, and and we will see continued return, positive return on investment in those ways. And, and that's borne out from the very beginning when I interviewed Dallas Mount for episode two of the working cows podcast, I asked him, and we talked about those four pillars 
I said, what, what's the biggest barrier to success? And he didn't hesitate. He said, without a doubt, it's the people, uh, without a doubt, the biggest barrier to success in the ranching industry is lack of intentionality and skill in managing people. Now that's not a direct quote. The part that is a direct Mm -hmm. quote is without a doubt, it's the people, but if we had if we had greater intentionality and skill in managing people, we'd probably have a lot greater success in transferring ranches to the next generation. Yeah, that reminds me of the old saying, a jack of all trades is a master of none. And people don't realize that the, the full original reference continued hmm. to say oftentimes better than a master of one. And I I feel like we see this in people that do well in agriculture, it really requires being a successful generalist, which is not a uh, which is not a slam. I've been reading through the book uh, Range, an interesting title given hmm. what we're talking about. But uh, the book is really about about the importance of having a, a broad skill set and knowledge set to be effective at nearly everything in life. You know, there's been lots of talk about. Uh, 10,000 hours and, you know, mm-hmm. the, what they call tiger parents that require children to, you know, put in the time on one particular thing so that they can be excellent at it. And, uh, the author of the book makes the case that that really is only effective if what you're trying to be good at is something that requires, you know, really repetitive, um, the things like sports or music where, if you want to be a good violin player or a golfer, uh, yes, if you put in tens of thousands of hours doing the same thing over and over again, you'll get really good at doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, but for most spheres of life, it's much more effective to have a, a broad range of knowledge and skills. Uh, and that makes you uh, significantly more effective, even at, at solving problems that uh, you don't know you need to solve yet. And there's a, a lot of research behind that. But I, I see this in agriculture where the people that tend to be really successful, uh, they are they have interests and skills that that span, you know, those four pillars and, and then some. Yeah, I think that, you know, um, going along with that idea when we I think that that idea of of seeing children hyper specialized in in one sport one discipline is probably fairly new i would say many of the of the top tier athletes even to this day that we get to watch on a national stage probably weren't hyper specialized although we're starting to get to the point where that hyper specialization is uh, going to start to bring some people in, but I would I would guess that it's it's going to be it's still going to continue to be rare because of the rate of burnout that happens in hyper specialized uh, individuals, and especially from a young age, uh, and especially when it's com- compulsory, when it's it's not something you enjoy doing, and that's that's really goes back to this issue. We enjoy we enjoy working cows. We enjoy being in the corral on a horse or on the, on foot and seeing our immediate, immediate, uh, pressure and immediate, uh, choices as far as do I take a step forward or a step back and how that cow reacts, we get that immediate feedback and we enjoy those decisions probably partly because of the immediate feedback, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, but also partly because that cow isn't a person and, and we, it's a lot easier for us anyways to, to, 
see that cow and to not not understand all the complexity going on beneath the surface because they can't communicate it to us and so we we enjoy the land management decisions because we can we can see how those things are 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 making our place better uh, we don't always enjoy managing money we don't always enjoy managing people and so uh, it can be it can be more difficult for us to to look at uh, investing in sharpening the axe that when it comes to uh, when it comes to managing people and managing money because we we just aren't wired as as ranchers to enjoy those uh, disciplines as much and so it becomes something that we have to we have to discipline ourselves to go out and invest in becoming a better manager of people and money because uh, those are those are going to be important for the long-term success and uh, and we are going to have to discipline ourselves to do that uh, even though we might not enjoy it at first um, and we we tend to be good at what we enjoy you know we we tend to be good at what we enjoy because we'll take the time to invest in sharpening that axe to become better at it Clay, you've interviewed quite a few people over the last three years. Are, does anybody stand out as a favorite interviewee or a topic that you found to be um, most interesting to you? I will say that in a lot of cases, I um, I feel like I'm I'm keeping my nose above water. Um, I'm doing everything I can to take notes and to keep up with the conversation. Uh, these people that I'm talking to probably as a general rule are a decade ahead of me in terms of thinking about these issues of managing land, animals, people, money. And so I, I have, I, I am, it's a, it's a been an, an, an incredible continuing education opportunity for me, uh, to ask, ask questions of some of the best minds in the industry, uh, about these things. And, and most often I'm asking questions because I genuinely don't know the answer and I want to know the answer because it's going to affect the way I make decisions tomorrow on my operation. And so, uh, there there's i mean there's a host of of great guests and and opportunities one that always comes to mind and and I, as i say as i've said recently uh, and regularly proof that we need more cow focused regenerative agriculture podcasts is that Logan Pribino to my knowledge has only been a guest well I know he's only been a guest on my podcast once and i'm not sure he's ever been a guest on anybody else's and uh, he's a, he's a guy from from Nebraska that's just uh, doing some great things on a ranch that's that really truly learned the principles of holistic management directly from Alan Savory himself and have been implementing the principles of holistic management since the mid 80s. And so, I mean, he's he's generations ahead of me and he's my age and he's he's been thinking about these things a lot longer than I have. But I mean, I've had the opportunity to talk to um uh, I don't know how else to say this. I'm not trying to brag, but I've had an opportunity to talk to a who's who, who's who list of of ranchers. I mean, I've I've interviewed Joel Salatin, Alan Savory twice, um, Burke Tigert. Um, I'll probably leave somebody out. Johan Johan Zeitzman or Zietzman, uh, Ian Mitchell Innes, Greg Judy. Um, you know, all these guys and still my favorite, my favorite ones are the guys who are making the decision that's going to change the amount of food on mm -hmm. the table. The guys who are making the decisions that is going to change the extravagant extravagance of the family vacation. You know, I still 
those are the ones that still mean a lot to me. And, and there've been genuine friendships developed as a result of this podcast. Me personally, I have developed genuine friendships with listeners and with uh, guests and, and we call and talk about things other than cows. <laughs> and, and so it's been a, a great thing. You know, Brian, Brian, Alexander, Brian Alexander comes to mind in that regard and, and other people, neighbors of mine now that I've made a transition, uh, to a new place last year, um, neighbors of mine now have, have were listeners before I ever met them. And now, they're, they're guys that I, I count as friends and enjoy, enjoy their company, um, outside of, of ranching endeavors, I, I guess. So, uh, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of really neat opportunities and, and a lot of really, uh, neat guests. And, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't mention, uh, Jim Garrish in the list that I, I made earlier. So, I mean, it, it's just been a, a really neat opportunity for me and, um, I, it's really tough to narrow it down to a favorite or to even remember the the guest list or or to remember um yeah influences i guess yeah i like the idea or i i resonate with the idea that uh your job is to be a chief learner not the guru or the dispenser of information uh but you know trying to learn as much as you can yourself and and make that information available to others. I think that's a, it's a really satisfying pastime and I feel like it's Hmm. useful and I really like, um, I like the, the list of folks and topics that you've covered in your podcast. Have there been any conversations that were especially provocative or contentious? And those can mean really different things by (laughs) provocative. I, I guess I could mean something that, um, you weren't expecting that you had not thought about before, but has been really influential. And uh, you any, and then separately, any conversations that have been contentious, um, maybe after the fact with with listeners. Yeah, I've I've re- received very very little uh, negative feedback. Um, and, in a couple of episodes I did on something called the infinite banking concept, um, which is outside the box as far as financial planning and, and all those things. Mm-hmm. And I'm not an, I'm not an expert and, uh, yeah. So I'll just say that, but, um, I've, I, I, that's one of them I received some negative feedback about. And I, uh, to my knowledge, it was one comment. Um, but, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so very little negative feedback. Um, and I guess it's not in my nature <laughs> uh, to be to to engage in conflict. It's not in my it's not in the purview of the show. I mean, I think people get yeah. plenty of of conflict. Uh, if you want to turn on the TV, you can get conflict for four hours every night if you really want it. And it's not, you don't have to go very far to find it. And mm-hmm. so I don't think I need to add to that. You know, I don't think I need to, um, to be another place where people can go and right. find that conflict. And and frankly, I don't think people really care <laughs> what I think about some of those issues that would generate conflict. And so I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and force that either. Um, you know, provocative for sure. Um, there have been lots of provocative statements made. Um, I have, I have even gotten, gotten bold enough to make a few of my own recently, but, um, you know, it's, it is, 
I mean, just that's the whole, that's the whole idea, the whole idea of the show. I mean, um, one of the things I've said about the show over and over again is I'm not telling you how to ranch. I'm not telling you how to manage. I'm just giving you something to think about while you manage and while you ranch. And so that's the whole idea is to provoke thought. The whole idea, I mean, uh, providing producers to uh, a platform to discuss and share paradigm challenging practices. So the whole idea of the show is to challenge paradigms, you know, to, Mm -hmm. to talk about things like swath grazing, to talk about things like moving cows to feed rather than feed to cows, to talk about things like the fact that uh, they make as much hay in Texas as they do in, in North Dakota, um, you know, and, and typically feed as much hay in Texas as they do in North Dakota and, and for totally different reasons, but everybody thinks basically for the same reason that everybody thinks they have to, um, you know, and, and so then, then to interview guys who are in Texas grazing low, low octane grass and guys who are in, in, uh, Bismarck, there's another one I didn't mention. Um, um, uh, Gabe Brown in, in Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, so, um, John Coleman lock in on the Gulf coast of Texas, I think 60 miles from the coast of Texas grazing low octane grass that, you know, as one of my friends described it, they don't grow grass there. They grow tall water, uh, you know, and, and not feeding any hay. And then, and then Gabe Brown in Bismarck, North Dakota, if he does feed hay, it's bale grazing, you know? So, I mean, they're challenging those paradigms, challenging those thought processes of this is how we have to do it. We're, uh, and I, I don't want to be more provocative after I just said that it's not my, in my nature or in, in the purview of my show, but, um, we have to do it. We're a victim of our environment. Um, if we didn't live here, we could do it differently. Well, I, I try to find people who blow that paradigm up and say, nope, these guys who are in a worse climate than you are doing it. And so if you want to, you can do it. Uh, but the question is, do you want to? <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I don't think being a provocateur is a good strategy for helping people learn. It may be good for uh, deriving subscriptions on political talk shows, but that's not what we do. Uh, what are what are some of the greatest challenges that you have found in creating content? Time management. Um, you know, it takes me three or four hours to produce an episode, um, and so I am a I'm, I'm a pastor. That's that's well. First, I'm a, a husband. Then I'm a father, and then I'm a pastor. And then I'm a podcaster. So if something has to fall off the table, it's going to be the podcast. Um, and I've, t- I've told my, my church board this too. If something else has to fall off that table, it's going to be the church. And they've told me, yep, and you're making the right decision. If you do, let it fall. And so, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, but, so I've got those, those constraints. And there have been times when, when I needed that two by four between the eyes and to be reminded of the fact that I am uh, not fulfilling my obligations in those other areas of my life. And so, um, yeah, time management has been, has been the greatest challenge, um, getting, getting content out in a timely manner while also, uh, keeping all these other plates spinning. If you, if you want to use that as an illustration. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. I, even though, uh, the release schedule on the art of range has been more like every two weeks that has been plenty fast for me and it definitely is uh, requires some discipline and keeps kicking my butt. Uh, 
Uh, there's a couple of questions from Emmett Jordan, a listener of both podcasts in Colorado. And he, he asked, uh, I think in the context in which he sent it to both of us in the process of creating and building, uh, this platform. And I'm asking you what has brought you the greatest satisfaction in doing the working cows podcast. Oh, seeing, getting the opportunity to make decisions on my own place that were shaped by uh, things I learned by doing the podcast. I mean, uh, this last year is a prime example. It was the first year, first season of management. We've got our first season of management under our belt. Um, We brought in my dad's cows in March and then they left in April. I calved them out and they left and they left at the end of April, right after they left some custom grazing cattle came in. And so we moved them every other day, uh, for most of the summer, we started out moving them every day, but then fencing and water constraints and time management constraints, uh, motivated us to move them every other day for most of the summer. And, um, just getting to see, see these things work, seeing, seeing cows come into a two acre chunk, about 70 of them and or a four acre five acre chunk depending on the depending on the day um getting to see them come in and and just take the top third off the that whole place and then move them the next day and see them do the same thing again and uh yeah so those were cool um after the cows left we started uh bail or we started swath grazing um, too late as it were. Um, I learned some things we had some, I think I'm, I'm attributing it to nutritional issues. Um, might've been some other issues going on there, but we had some more opens than I would be comfortable with, uh, on a consistent basis in our, in our own personal cow herd. Uh, but we started, we did started doing some swath grazing after the custom grazing cattle left, getting, getting to see that work really, really well with cows. I I started out trying it with cows and sheep. Um, and if I would have had two, two wires in front of the sheep, it probably would have worked, but it, it just didn't, didn't (laughs) consistently work. So we put the sheep back in, in the net fencing and, uh, they're now, they're now bale grazing with the cows and I've got, I've got them on one side with three wires and then on, on the other two sides that doesn't get them back into the barnyard for water. They are, they have net fencing for now. And, and so in the future, it'll be either one or two strands in front of them and then net fencing down one side and three strands of hot wire down the other. So, um, just getting to see some of those things come, come out, uh, selfishly. Those are the cool things. Those are the, those are the satisfactions that I've gotten. Um, probably selflessly, uh, it's been an, uh, it's, it's improved the quality of life for my family. Um, selflessly it has, uh, there's been a network of people who I'm not sure how they would have gotten connected if it wasn't for uh, the network that's developed around the podcast. I don't, I don't know. Uh, it it could have, it definitely could have happened without me uh, or without the podcast. But I, I think that there has been some, on some level, the podcast has facilitated that network. Mm-hmm. I want to shift gears a little bit and, and zoom out some. Uh, do you see some any trends within uh, animal agriculture, and I guess I mean mostly in the United States, uh, that you think is healthy? Uh, for example, it, it feels to me like mature cow weight is going down. And I don't know if that's just some of the folks that I interact with a lot or you know, if, if that actually represents uh, a, 
an actual trend are, you know, trends that maybe are healthy or some that you think are unhealthy or unsustainable? I think that the desire, the strong desire to be involved in agriculture and the, the uh, capital intensive nature of starting in agriculture is going to drive some people to challenge paradigms, to think about uh, managing land, animals, money, and people differently. Uh, I think that's a, that's a positive thing. Uh, I think that um, it's, there's, there's uh, probably – uh, some some awareness, uh, a rise in awareness coming uh, to more urban sectors about what we are doing out here. And I think that there's also the interest and the desire for them to be involved and they don't have any of the baggage. They don't have any of the preconceived ideas about what ranching has to be. And so they might come in and, and just do things differently. And I think that could be, that could be a, a positive thing. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what else. I mean, I think that you're, you're probably right in a, in a range setting, um, in, in farm country where there's still a feed base, there's still plenty of, of large framed animals and, uh, but they've mm -hmm. got the feed base to support that. So I guess more power to them, but yeah, I think that the, yeah, I think that there is there is some some certainly some some bright spots for sure and some opportunity uh, for for involvement if people are willing to think differently about what it means to be a rancher. It doesn't mean green tractor. Uh, it doesn't mean uh, a lot of things that it has meant. It doesn't even mean necessarily owning cows. Honestly, um, I think that that's that's a big one that um, people people are starting to recognize and and take advantage of mm -hmm. i guess a, a trend assumes that a number of people are doing the same thing and i've said for years that ranchers are one of the most diverse groups across agriculture maybe they represent the you know the the time 100 years ago when 80 percent of the population was involved in agriculture and you by definition had a lot of diversity but there's an awful lot of things that ranchers disagree about um, and more things that they disagree about than other sectors. You know, in, for example, tree fruit growers or hop growers or specialty vegetable seed producers tend to agree on more than they disagree. And ranchers disagree on quite a few things, whether it's you know, forward contracting, packer ownership, country of origin labeling, the list could go on and on. Do you see some important things that, that ranchers agree on that are worth talking about? Oh man, this is a tough one. I think, um, you know, what do they, what do they agree on? Uh, grass and water goes in the front end, calves and manure and urine come out the back end. I, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I think that there is, there is a lot of contention. I think that a lot of that is a, is a product of our culture. Um, I think a lot of that is a product of never meeting other people, uh, outside of the, um, tribal context. So what do I mean by that? Like, yeah. uh, our rallies, we're meeting people at a rally where we're holding a sign saying your side is bad. My side is good. And we're yelling that back and forth at each other. And we, we never meet people outside of that tribal context. Or when we do meet people, um, 
once we find out what tribe they're a member of, we uh, have an issue. We have we have a hard time getting past that tribal distinction and and embracing them as as a person, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so I think that those are those are challenges and that and I don't think that there's much in our world. I don't I really don't think that there's much in our world that is fighting those challenges or that is that is making those challenges any better. I think most of the people with a platform in our world and this goes for ag journalism as well. Um, have gotten that platform because of their willingness to be a provocateur and they are they are facilitating that silo that echo chamber uh that is all that echo chamber does is mm-hmm. is lob grenades at the other echo chamber and and it's so i th- i don't think there's a lot that facilitates that um finding those those common ground pieces you know and um i would love to hear your your thoughts on what where you see agreement in the industry uh but i i really think that the the solution to that is to meet people outside of that rally context, outside mm-hmm. of that, that sign holding March context and to, to maybe not even inquire about their, their thoughts and get to know them as a person before you know where they stand on an issue. Uh, but I don't, yeah, I, I guess that nothing jumps to mind as far as uh, clear areas of agreement. You know, I think that there's a lot of potential, um, but I, I, I do I do struggle a little bit to come up with a, a clear area of agreement, but I really do value the way that you think and the way that you articulate things and the way that you process things. And I don't mean to turn turn the tables on the interview, but I would I would love to hear your your thoughts on those issues. No, I think that's valid. I was just thinking as you were talking <clears throat> about uh, this polarity, you know, in the in the virtual digital universe in this space, people tend to make progress by differentiating themselves from others and by setting themselves Mm -hmm. up as the authority. And we get to the point where people feel like they can't trust anything they hear, which which I think is somewhat a a valid valid concern and and a real problem. I do think that uh, some areas of agreement have to do with what you said first. It you know, the fact that cows eat grass and turn it into a high value food product is not a small thing. And, uh, you know, those who are in the regenerative agriculture space like to say that that is something that we should make much of and rally around. Uh, and I, I think that resonates with, with the non-agricultural public. I had a Natural resource policy professor in college, actually Kendall Johnson, who was the chair of the University of Idaho Range Department for quite a quite a while, said that the general public is not going to value food producers, farmers, and ranchers until they're not sure where the next plate of beans is going to come from. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, it sounds a little bit apocalyptic, and I I don't want to stoke that any further. Either I, I sincerely hope that we don't reach that social stability threshold, um, but, but I do feel pretty strongly that most ranchers have a good story to tell, and in general, I think animal agriculture has a good story to tell. Uh, I've said for years, and it's a, you know a repeat a, a repeat of what other people like Courtney White 
who was the founder of the Quivira Coalition, have said too. There, there's not many sectors of agriculture where you can produce food and fiber in the same space where we're producing in a place where we have uh, retain naturally occurring plant communities and produce wildlife habitat and the full suite mm. of ecological goods and services that that we expect from you know open land or what people might call you know wild lands and that really is is what happens in uh, in at least cattle ranching in particular even even in places where we have tame pastures you know that represents um, significant habitat for all kinds of wildlife species and and we produce food in the same space and I think it's a good story to tell um, right now the 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 Art of Range podcast is operating under a grant from the Western Center for Risk Management Education. And the grant that is funding us for this year, um, we've promised a few topics. And one of them is communicating with the non-agricultural public and how to help um, people like ranchers tell their own story. And I think this is one of the things that we can, uh, that we can sell, that cows and sheep and and goats uh, take the most abundant carbohydrate on the planet uh, cellulose and turn it into it we take tall water and sunlight <laughs> and turn it into something that is truly one of the most valuable food products for humans uh, that's out there red meat is um, really good for people. And I, I, I think we have not done a very good job telling that story in particular in ranching, you know, because we, one, we, we don't want to stoke conflict with other sectors of agriculture, but I think the good story can be told without distinguishing us from farmers. I've got nothing against corn farmers, but you know, you plant an acre of corn and you take out everything that was there before the corn was there. And in ranching, you know, we there's a, a much broader set of ecological goods associated with an acre of pasture uh, than there are with an acre of cropland, and that's a good story to tell without throwing corn under the bus. And I think that that cows and sheep and goats are are a great answer to making that story that corn is telling a better story. Um, if if we didn't drive by the majority of cornfields without a fence around them, you know, then then maybe there would be that other story of livestock integration onto that co- onto that cropland, um, reduced uses of chemical chemical fertilizers and pesticides and some of those things. You know, I think that there is there's opportunity there too, and I, I think that could be uh, a very a very healthy direction for the industry to go, and a very positive uh, partnership that could develop uh, between those two sectors of of the ag industry as it is. You know, and and some back of the back of the envelope math I did a long time ago, uh, I came up with eighty two percent of you know if you go and buy a ribeye that that critter was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of sixteen to eighteen months old at the time it had mm-hmm. its one bad day in its life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so when, when you go and buy that, that ribeye, uh, something like 82% of that, that critter's life on the low end, I would say was spent 
outside con- converting solar energy and cellulose into protein on grass, you know, and then the yeah. other 18% is where that fundamental conflict comes between the two sides of the industry. Um, but if, if we can <laughs> tell the story that, and, and this, that, that doesn't even mention, that doesn't even mention the, the cow who's spending her whole life on grass you know, for the most part, I mean, I would say the majority of beef cows in this country spend their whole life on, on a forage based diet. Um, whether that forage is brought to them, um, or not, it, it's still grass. It was cut down and rolled up into a hay bale. It's still grass. And so she's spending her whole life out there converting solar energy, uh, sequestering carbon, um, you know, doing all these great things. Uh, and so I think that there's, there's definitely a story to tell there. And then even, even in the conventional side of things, that critter that you're, you're throwing on the grill as a ribeye was 82% of its life was on, on grass. And that's, that's a fairly conventional, uh, number. And that, again, that's some back of the envelope math I did. I haven't even taken time to verify that. I just, did the number of days they were alive and the number of days the typical animal spends on feed and came up with that number. So people can shoot holes in that number all they want and it won't offend me one bit, but <laughs> it's something that I think we could probably call attention to in a positive way. Um, you know, I think that there's, there's opportunity to call attention to the improvements and, and the continual improvement of animal handling. Um, you know, I know, I know, Ranchers have every right to be uh, reticent to invite uh, journalists in. I know there are stories that you could point out of of journalists who came in under one auspices and 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 ended up producing something that that read a little bit different on the in the in the headlines in in the New York you know New York Times or Wall Street Journal or whatever it was. You know, so I think that there's 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 this lack of trust there that is probably somewhat warranted. But uh, at the same time, we have made improvements in in a lot of these circumstances and situations. And I think that it's um, that if people had had more opportunity to understand where their food was coming from, not just a snippet of that or not just what they learned from the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or whatever, but Today, this is the environment those cows are those those critters are coming from. Um, I think that there's some the, some benefit there uh, if we could if we could you know pull back that curtain a little bit. And there are people who do it, and people who I respect a lot for doing it in some pretty tough circumstances like confinement, dairy, and and those kinds of operations. Uh, people are still willing to to open up those doors and and do those tours and let people see the things. Um, but there's always that fear of the hidden camera and, and the, 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 the employee who's having the one bad day, you know, and, and there they were to capture it. So, you know, I'm not saying that, that, that it isn't without risk, but, um, I think on our, on our side, on some level, um, if we're going to communicate that story, there's probably going to be some risk involved with it at some point. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one of the things you said a minute ago prompted, uh, a, a question you talked about taking the fences down on cornfields. And I think, I think that represents both a trend and, uh, some, you know, some in- encouraging future changes in animal agriculture. I, I was searching for some good quotes about prediction and, uh, 
one of the one that's get been repeated quite a bit is Niels Bohr, who is a Danish physicist. He was probably the only thing he's really known for is for saying that prediction is very difficult, especially if it's about the future. And um, I ran across another quote that essentially said anybody who's good at predicting the future tends to be a student of the past. And I think this integration of livestock back into cropping systems is one of those things. This is a, a back to the future trend that is healthy. And I think it's going to prove to be healthy ecologically and financially and socially. Um, you know, I had a, an aunt and uncle in Wisconsin that had a dairy. Then they sold in the big buyout in the middle of the 1980s. But, you know, it was the classic Wisconsin dairy farm where they grew their own feed. They milked about 200 cows and it was, you know, pretty much a, a closed integrated system for several decades. And we're, we're seeing some of the reintegration, I think, but it's a reintegration across more specialized farms rather than uh, within individual farms. And um, there's, a, there's a, a few places in Washington state where uh, there are essentially irrigated sand dunes that, that, you know, because it's so dry here, they can grow pretty high quality stuff. The problem with those sand dunes is that even if you can put water on it, the ground, the soil doesn't hold water for long enough uh, to be effective. And one of the bigger farmers doing this said that uh, they would find that within 24 hours after running a pivot across a piece of ground, the plants in that spot would be exhibiting drought symptoms. And so they thought, you know, what's the only one of the only cost effective ways of adding organic matter to that essentially sand cropping area, that field would be to graze it with livestock. And uh, they have been grazing crop aftermath on these uh, on these really sandy areas for about 10 years now. But they said after after five years. Uh, the measured organic matter was up to about a percent and a half, which was up from, you know, about a half a percent or less. But, but with that minimal increase in soil organic matter, uh, the water holding capacity went up significantly where they could go between three and four days between mm. pivot passes without having the plants start to wilt and, and dry down. Uh, you know, and that's a pretty small example, but you know the benefits of 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 grazing crop aftermath and reintegrating livestock back into these cropping systems, I think is uh, is an encouraging trend in several different ways. and i I hope that it also encourages some um, you know more communication across the people who are involved in different sectors of agriculture because I think we had gotten to the point where there's some antagonism between uh, ranchers and farmers. I was just going to see if, if you had any um, reflections based on conversations you've had over the last three years about uh, this trend, at least in some parts of the country, of, uh, as you said, taking down the fences on cornfields and reintegrating livestock into cropping systems really like it was for most of human history prior to, say, 1950. 
Well, I I don't have any data, but I definitely think it's getting easier to reintegrate livestock. You know, uh, the advent of electric fencing, the the ease of training cows, even even cows that have never seen electric fence, to to electric fence and getting them to respect it. And you know, I think that 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 process is getting a lot easier, and the opportunity is definitely there. Um, I think, you know, as of as of recording, we're back up north of $5 for corn, and I wouldn't doubt that that's going to motivate some planting in the 2021 season of corn where it wasn't before, and maybe that's going to involve the removal of some more fences, but I think that there's opportunity, uh, there's opportunity there, and I really do think that that is, is, is kind of one of those, um, the desire to be involved, the strong desire for people who've never been involved in agriculture and the strong desire for people who've been involved in agriculture their whole life, but they can't afford to pay, you know, 850 on the low end to, uh, to, you know, who knows what on the high end, $10,000 an acre for land, uh, you know, in, in some of the more fertile areas of the world. Um, so, you know, they can't afford that. So they got to find a way into the industry and that, that the strength of that desire drives them to do things like go to a corn farmer and say, Hey, uh, can we, can we put up a couple of strands of electric fence around the outside of this and graze the graze the aftermath uh, with our cows uh, we'll we'll leave it hopefully or we'll we'll do our best to leave it better than we found it and and you can you can be a, be the judge of that but take the opportunity uh, when it comes and uh, and and pursue a little bit different way into the industry you know so I think that those are definitely definitely some positive things um, and some of the opportunities that exist if people are willing to think outside the box well, I think what you just said is an excellent um, benediction. So we're gonna we're gonna stop there. Uh, my guest today was Clay Connery, host of the Working Cows podcast, which you can find at workingcows.net or on your favorite podcasting platform. Uh, Clay, thank you for your time, and it was good to have you. The pleasure was all mine. Tip, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.